Good morning. Christ is risen. So it's Mother's Day, and I thought I would start by telling you my favorite Mother's Day story. So when I was 16 or 17, we were attending a church that would bus in some people from a nearby elder care facility. And on Mother's Day, of course, we would give flowers to all the mothers. We didn't sell them in this terrible idea that Paul is talking about. Just kidding. Obviously, it's a very good cause. But we gave these, mother, we gave these flowers away, and to, including to these mothers who were coming from this care facility. But one Mother's Day, there was a woman who had never come any time before, and she never came again. She just was there on this one Mother's Day. And on this particular Mother's Day, we brought all the mothers to the front, gave them a flower, and asked them to speak. And most of it was, you know, I love my children, thank you for the rose, that kind of stuff. But this lady was the last one to speak. So all these mothers have talked, they hand her the mic, and she starts crying, and which others had cried. It was an emotional moment. And this is what she said. She said, I'm so glad to be here today. I'm so glad that there's a church like this, and I just hope that all of you are ready when the bomb in Gilead goes off. Now, I don't know if you realize what the joke is there, right? So there's a scripture in Jeremiah that talks about the balm, B-A-L-M, in Gilead, that is for the healing of the nations. She thought that was a bomb in Gilead. So that's my favorite Mother's Day story. Has nothing to do with anything, except it's Mother's Day. So I thought I would share that. And it really did happen. You know, a lot of times when someone's up here talking, you, those of you who are thinking, you realize, well, I don't know if it happened just like that. It happened just like that. Like that happened, just like that. All right, so I want to talk about obedience this morning. You know, reading scripture for a lot of us is, is like going to the zoo. You know, going to the zoo, it's, it's, a, it's an okay experience. You've been once, especially if you go to the same zoo more than once. You know what you're getting. There's not much excitement because there's no risk. And reading scripture is like that for most of us. I mean, we, we pretty much know what we're getting. There's not a whole lot of risk. It's a decent enough experience. But every once in a while, on the news, you will hear about someone falling into the bear pit. And that makes going to the zoo exciting, especially if you're the one who falls into the bear pit. And the good news is that reading scripture works like that, too. Sometimes you're reading, and you fall into the bear pit, and you weren't expecting it. You're not prepared for it, and all of a sudden, God has grabbed you and pulled you in to something that puts you at risk. And that happened to me just about eight to ten days ago when I started preparing for what I wanted to say today. So if, if you're not familiar with the lectionary, the way the lectionary works is this years in advance, the church orders readings for each Sunday of the year. And it's a reading from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, from the Gospels, and from an epistle usually four or five readings every week. And whenever I'm asked to speak, I go first to the lectionary and begin to reflect on it and pray and see where I sense my heart being pulled. And so I don't always speak from the lectionary, but I start there. Well, eight to ten days ago when I started to prepare for this moment, I went to the lectionary and I started reading these texts and I fell into the bear pit or was pulled into it. And I realized something was happening to me that I had not prepared for, that I couldn't have prepared for. And it had to do with obedience. Now, as you know, I'm a professor of theology. 
I've been a, a pastor for most of my adult life, long before I should have been a pastor. <laughs> so I thought that I had a pretty good grasp on what obedience is. Not necessarily that I was always obedient. I wasn't that naive. But I thought I could at least talk about obedience, even if I couldn't obey, you know? But then I'm reading these scriptures, and I realize I don't know that I know anything about obedience. And I don't know that I know what to say about it. And so there I am in the bear pit. So my goal this morning is to pull all of you in with me. So here we go. We're going to start in 1 John. We're going to read three scriptures. 1 John, then from the Gospel of John, and then a story in the book of Acts. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the parent loves the child, as a rule. There are exceptions, I'm sure. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, if you've read 1 John, you know that John also makes this statement in reverse. He says, the way that we know we love God is that we love one another. But here he says, the way we know we love one another is that we love God and obey his commandments. So there's this linking of loving and obeying, which this was the first moment that I kind of started to lean over the pit a little too far. Because I realized instinctively that for me, love and obedience don't necessarily relate, or I don't know exactly how they relate. Obedience suggests something other than a loving relationship to me. And so he says, for the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments. And of course, I've read this text, I've heard this text before this moment, but for some reason this time, I realized I don't quite know what to make of that, that love equals obedience. And his commandments are not burdensome, First John says. His commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. The love of God is this, that we obey. His commandments are not burdensome, but it, they immediately push us into conflict with the world. And so I was puzzling. And I thought, I'll perhaps, perhaps I'll read the next text, which is from the Gospel of John. It'll clear this up a bit. John 15, let's see if there's any clarity that comes. Jesus said to his disciples, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And of course, you know this passage of Scripture. It's all about abiding. All about the vine and the branches and abiding in him and whatever abides in him has his life and so on. If you keep my commandments, so here's the language again, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So it seems that it's not only that we love Jesus by obeying his commands, Jesus loved the father by obeying the father's commands. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And now I'm even a bit more puzzled. Because notice, up to this point, we've always been speaking about commandments. Now we're talking about a commandment. And it is, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, and now I'm falling. What do you mean we're your friends if we do what you command? 
Think about your friendships. If someone were to say to you, you can be my friend if you do what I command you to do, would you define that as a friendship? Right? And immediately I realized what the dissonance was for me. That I think of obedience as a master, slave, boss, employee, authority, submittee relationship. And I think of friendship as sharing in authority. No one's submitted to anyone. There's equality. There's participation. So here's an imbalance of power. Here's a balance of power. And now Jesus is he's talking in gibberish. You're my friends if you do what I command you. And then he says, to make it worse, and this is about the time I hit the ground, I do not call you servants any longer. Those of you I just told to obey my commands. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And then the last strange statement. I am giving you these commands, plural, so that you may love one another. Now first, I want to ask you, what commands? I'm giving you these commands. And so I thought, well, what are they, Jesus? I only see one commandment, love one another. And so I started to read. So reading through the Gospel of John, looking for another command. And there isn't one. So here he is saying, I give you these commandments, these commands in the plural, and yet the only command he actually gives is love one another. That's odd. But then, perhaps the, the oddest oddity of all is that he tells us why he gives us these commands, which we know now is only really one commandment. And that is, so that you may love one another. Now, what's the one commandment? Love one another. What's the purpose of that one commandment that he sometimes refers to in the plural? So that you can love one another. So you're giving me a command to love my neighbor so that I can love my neighbor. That seems passing strange to me. And so I thought perhaps I'll read the story that's in Acts and that will clear it up because I don't know what's being said in John. So Acts 10 is the story of Peter, the apostle, going to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is the first truly Gentile convert to the faith. Before this moment, and, and probably, we're not sure, but probably about a decade has passed between the events of Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost and Cornelius' conversion. So you have about a decade, probably, eight to ten years, in which there are Christians, people who are following Jesus, but they're all Jews, or they are Gentiles who've become Jew in some way. Like they've made a commitment to the Jewish way of life. They're not full-on Gentiles until this experience. And what happens, as only God would do, is God sends an angel to Cornelius during prayer to tell him to send one of his servants to Jerusalem to ask the apostle Peter to come back to Cornelius' house to tell Cornelius about the gospel. 
Sometimes God is woefully inefficient. Why not just have the angel tell Cornelius the gospel? Or just tell Peter to go to Cornelius. But no, it's an angel comes to Cornelius, send your servant to Peter, have Peter come to you. And of course, Peter, it's, it's lunchtime, and he's on the rooftop, and he's praying, and he's kind of dozing, as you do during lunch when you're trying to pray. And he has a vision. And it's a vision of this sheet, and on this sheet, the text says, is every unclean animal. And then a voice says, kill and eat. You're hungry, it's lunch, eat. And Peter says, no, no, I'm not going to eat. That's unclean. I'm a Jew. I keep the Lord's law. I obey the law. I don't disobey by eating these unclean things, at which point the voice says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And here's, you can imagine Peter's bewilderment. I've been obeying you, I thought, by keeping the law I thought you gave us, by not eating unclean things, and now here you are presenting all of these unclean things to me and telling me not to disobey you now by refusing to eat them. So up to this point, I've obeyed you by not eating them. Now you're telling me the only way I can obey you is by eating them. And so right in that moment, the servant appears and invites Peter to come speak to Cornelius. So Peter goes, and he takes a group of people from the church with him. Now, I'm not sure why they go. I don't know if Peter feels like he needs, if he needs an entourage <laughs> or if they're afraid he's going to muck this up in some way, right? And they're like, well, we better follow Peter. I mean, he has a history. For whatever reason, they go with him. And they get to Cornelius' house, and Peter has this aha moment. Oh, now I see God is no respecter of persons. I said on the day of Pentecost 10 years ago that this spirit was for all flesh. Now I realize what that meant. And so he starts speaking the gospel, and as he's speaking, here's where we pick up the story. While Peter was still talking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Why are they astounded? Because these people are living in disobedience as they understand it. And they are living in obedience as they understand it. Now why is the Spirit falling on the disobedience as well as the obedience? They don't know what to make of it. And they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter turns to them and says, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So he says to this group who've come with him, Baptize them. You can imagine there was some grumbling. Then they, Cornelius' house, invited him to stay for several days. So this story doesn't help at all. What is obedience? Because it seems that Peter was living in obedience until he finds out that he isn't. And that Cornelius, the Gentile, the one who doesn't have the law, somehow is living in obedience. And so I thought, I need to back up for a moment and try to think, why, why is this so bewildering? And here's what I, I came to. I think our problem is we... We've imagined obedience by taking human experience and then projecting it onto our relationship with God. We have the experience, I mean, today is Mother's Day. We have the experience of being in submission to our parents, to those people who have that role in our lives. And we have the experience of being in submission to other authorities, whether it's a teacher or a boss. We have these human experiences of 
power relationships. And then what happens is we come to God, we come to Christ, we try to live the Christian life, and we hear the language of obedience and we think, oh, I know what that is. That's like this. An example is, uh, I have a, a good friend who will sometimes talk about how God spanks him. Right? And, of course, what he's doing is he's taking the experience of the discipline he received as a child. Right? And it would be easy to detour here and we could, we could talk about those of us who were raised with spanking. right? But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to drive right past that exit. Right? <laughs> but what he's, what he's doing is taking his, his experience of discipline and then mapping that onto the way God relates to him. And I think that what that does is it creates a kind of humanizing of God that ultimately obscures what God's doing in our life. And that's true even if the authorities in your life have been loving. But it's especially true in those ways in which the authorities in your life have been abusive. But even when you've been properly cared for by your parents, by your teachers, by your employers, there's still a way in which they are not loving you the way the Father loves you, and their commands are not like his commands. And so what we have to do is instead of thinking from our human experience up to God, we have to look at Jesus' experience of God and then work back to ourselves. Because as you saw in the text, Jesus is the one who obeys. Now think about that for a moment. We confess... And just a few moments ago, we confessed it again, that Jesus is the co-equal, co-eternal Son of God. That he is not less than the Father. That he is God in the same way that the Father is God and that the Spirit is God. And what that tells us right away is that somehow, obedience and equality are not at odds with each other. You remember, I told you, I think our basic assumption is, it's obedience is about the difference in power. Someone has more power than you, and therefore you obey them. And they have leverage over you because of that power. And that in friendship, you have equality, and so you don't have power plays. But what Jesus reveals is that in God, there is submission and authority and equality all at once. That freedom and obedience belong to one another. When you think about freedom and obedience in terms of a power differential, then obedience is always at odds with freedom. You obey, and you're not free while you're obeying, or you obey so you can be free once you're through obeying. But in Christ, obedience is freedom, and freedom is obedience. That when he obeys the Father, he's being who he is. And that when the Father commands him to do something, the Father is calling him to be who he is. So that there is in Jesus no conflict between being submitted to the Father, the Father is greater than I, and being the revelation of the Father as the fullness of God's character because he is equal to the Father. And now we have a new paradigm for thinking about what obedience is. And we need one desperately because the more I think about it, I think there are, there are two basic mistakes we make when we think about obedience. And Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament professor, retired now, this is the way he talks about it. He says, you, you, you end up, if you're not careful, you make one of two mistakes. You either think about obedience as complete subjugation of your will, in which God dominates you. And it's all God and none of you. And he calls that graceless obedience. There's no grace in it. It's just God is crushing you with his will. You're God, I'm not and it actually dehumanizes you. In which you have no sense of friendship, 
No sense of being brought into partnership with God. No sense of being his lover, his spouse. No sense of of being filled with his character. It's just God is smashing you with his otherness. But the other side of it, he says, once you've experienced this, and many of you will have had a taste of this somewhere in some church at some point in your life, in which the Christian life is framed in those terms, and which is just God's will as this crushing force that requires you to submit or else. And it's really not submission, it's subjugation. But Brueggemann says, often when we've experienced this, we we react violently and we swing into what he calls a graceless or faithless autonomy. And so what we do is we think, if you're going to treat me like that, then I will be free. I'll live on my own terms. But what Jesus reveals is that obedience is grace and freedom is obedience, that I'm never more myself than when I'm obeying, and God never gives me a command that's not about me becoming myself. So what we see is obedience is not a necessary evil, and it's not a step on the way to freedom. Obedience is the shape freedom takes in Jesus and in us. Let me give you a couple of statements. The first one is by Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury. In my opinion, one of the two or three most important theological voices in the church today. To submit to God, Rowan Williams says, is to be most directly in touch with what is most real. To submit to God is to be most directly in touch with what is most real. To refuse that submission is not to be free of an alien violence that's imposed on you, but to become an alien to yourself. Because as again, what we see in Jesus is that the command of the Father and the nature of Jesus are the same. The command of the Father is not arbitrary, It's not external to Jesus and imposed upon him. The command of the Father is the Father calling out of the Son who the Son is. And the same is true of you and me. This is why John says his commands are not burdensome. Because they're fitted to who we are. There is no command that he gives us that isn't drawing out of us who he's made us to be. The pain in obedience is not the weight of his commands. It's the conflict with the world that comes as we yield ourselves to those commands. And so often we confuse it. The pain we're feeling when God commands us to do X, Y, or Z is not the pain of the command. It's not burdensome. It's the pain of the conflict with the world that doesn't want us to know our true nature, that doesn't want us to know who and what we're made to be and to do. So there is pain in obedience. There is conflict in obedience. But it's not coming because you're being pressured down by an alien force. It's because the nature that's in you is at odds with the world around you. And God is drawing that out so you can be one who transforms the world around you. John Webster says it this way, another Anglican theologian. Listening means obedience. And what he's doing here is drawing on the fact that etymologically our word obedience comes from a Latin term, Latin phrase, that means to listen closely, to listen closely, in the sense that the servant is on pins and needles waiting to hear what needs doing next. Obedience is, he says, listening, and obedience is not craven submission. It's not what I call subjugation. It's not born of fear, and really quickly, let me insert this. You know, Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and just as we do with obedience we do with that language of fear and many of you will have struggled with what's the fear of the lord and the reason you struggle with it is that you're taking what you know of fear fearing those people who have power over you fearing the abuse 
that comes with that difference of power. And then asking, why does that lead me toward wisdom? Why should I fear God in that way? And so we try to get an end around by saying those who respect God are the respect of God. But actually, the key is to let Jesus tell you what fear is. Whatever we mean by fear of the Lord, it's what Jesus is and has and does. When you read the Gospels, that's what fear of the Lord looks like. So you can't know this Lord without knowing the way he reveals fear any more than you can know this Lord without knowing the way he reveals obedience and the way he reveals power. He has to redefine everything for you. And so he says, it is not born of fear. He means the fear we know. Obedience to God is the lifelong task of giving my consent to the shape which God has for my life. Obedience is letting God put me in the place where I can be the sort of person I am made by God to be. I'm, putting, I'm letting God put me in the place so I can become what I've been created to be. John Reisbrook, who's a 14th century Dutch mystic, he says it like this. Obedience is God making us supple. God making us supple. That when, when God requires you to obey, he's not breaking you. He's not snapping the limb. What he's doing is he knows you're going to be broken if I don't make you supple. So obedience is God working the oil into the leather. It's God putting the water into the clay so that when you come into conflict with the world, the world won't break you. Obedience is not about God crushing you or keeping you from being yourself. It's about God making you and making you yourself and everything he meant you to be. I'm going to show you an image. I'm almost done. Henry Ossinwall Tanner, who was late 19th century, early 20th century painter, and in some ways probably the first African-American painter to have international renown. One of his most famous pieces is this piece called The Banjo Lesson. And you can see here, it's an older black man, perhaps the father, perhaps a family friend, we're not sure, who is teaching this boy to play the banjo. And this is what I think of when I think about obedience. Now think about this moment, this space. There is intensity here. There is command. There is direction. There is difficulty. There is struggle. But it's not the struggle of the teacher with the ruler standing over you and smacking your hand every time you hit the wrong note. It's the pressure of the teacher who's holding you and the instrument at the same time. And I think about we were... Ed and I were talking last night after service. I thought about, in conversation with him, the passage from Isaiah where Isaiah says, you will hear a voice behind you whisper in your ear, this is the way. This is the way. That's what's happening here, right? This is an obedient relationship. But it's not an obedience that's alien to this boy. It's not violating who he is. It's making him who he is. And five years from this moment and 10 years from this moment and 20 years from this moment, when he picks up the banjo and makes it sing, he's making it sing because that man brought him into the freedom of obedience and taught him how to hold and how to play this instrument, brought out of him his own nature and out of the banjo its nature. That's all God does. Every command of God works like that. Whether we're talking about don't commit adultery or ultimately love your neighbor, which is the one command that encompasses all the commandments. 
It's always about drawing out of you the music you can't play if he doesn't show you how. So whatever the commandment is for you, I mean, again, there's really only one commandment. Love your neighbor the way God has loved you. That's the way you love God, and that's it. But at any given moment, God is working in your life and my life to say, here's the next step for you. Here's the next step for you. And I think some of us, and I I didn't realize this about myself until I started reading these texts and fell into the bear pit. I'm afraid of obedience. There's something in me somewhere that fears that if that obedience is going to take me away from myself. But when you see that all he's doing is whispering in your ear, this is the way. How can you fear that? One scripture and I'm done. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. So the truth is, for Jesus, you know, Jesus said this about his obedience. I do only what I see the Father doing. And if you read the Gospels, you realize Jesus never needed an intervention to know what to do to obey. You never see Jesus about to take the wrong step and the Holy Spirit jumping in front of him and saying, whoa, 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 don't do this. Right? But Jesus is never about to take the wrong step because he's always seeing what the Father is doing. Wherever he is, whether he's at Simon the Pharisee's house and the woman comes in and starts washing his feet, or he's walking along the road and a funeral procession comes in front of him, or he's walking along and someone touches the hem of his... Whatever Jesus is doing, he knows what to do because he knows what the Father is doing. So perfect freedom and perfect obedience align. But of course, you and I don't have that reality yet, or at least I don't have that reality yet. There are times in which I don't know what God's will is. And times when I think I know, but I'm not sure that I'm sure that I know. So we're living toward that. We're we're moving toward the place in which we have that kind of grasp on God's will. We see what the Father's doing, so we know what to do. And that's what Proverbs 4, 18 and 19 tells us. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what they stumble over. Now, what I love about reading these two passages of Scripture together is it shows you that there are obstacles in your way whether there's light for you to see it or not. And what I imagine is my experience. When I was 17, just graduated from high school, my dad took me to the Grand Canyon. And the goal, the the plan, was to backpack down into the canyon, camp out for seven days, and then backpack out. That sounds easy enough, but we were carrying, my bag was, my backpack was 55 pounds, my dad's was 54 because he insisted I have the heavier one, and we had a week's worth of supplies. So it takes us most of the day, it's 110 degrees in the shade, it's in July, we're backpacking down into the Grand Canyon, we get to the bottom, we get to the base camp, and the ranger comes by and looks at the map and says, that part of the park has been closed, you have to leave immediately. So he said we had one hour to to sleep, and then we had to backpack out. Well, of course, by this time, the sun is set, so we're going to be backpacking out of the Grand Canyon in the middle of the night, carrying 50, well, now 54 and a half pounds on our backs. Now, we were already exhausted, of course, but listen, backpacking out of the Grand Canyon in in the middle of the night is not a good idea. 
It's, it's not wise. I still remember, I told Ed, I still remember this moment in which I stumbled over a piece of wood that was in the road that I couldn't see, of course. And I fell, and I still remember when I fell, I, my, of course, I put my hands out and I, I felt the ground, but I felt on my face the wind that was coming from the edge. I couldn't see anything, but I could feel it. Right? But as we move up the mountain, by the time we're the, the last hour or two, the sun is rising. Right? The sun is coming up. And that's what I think about when I read this passage. The path doesn't get easier as you, as you obey, but you can see the path as you obey. Obedience doesn't change reality, but obedience tunes you in to reality. And the difference between walking in the light and walking in darkness is not the path. It's whether or not you can see what's about to happen in front of you on the path. So the reason God is whispering in your ear and calling you to obey is not that he's saying, if you'll obey, I'll fix the path for you. It's, if you will listen to me, I will show you what's about to come for you so you can be wise. So you can live wisely and become like my son is one who changes what's to come others. Stand with me if you will. So here's, I'm going to end, end with this. I've, I've been a little bit long today. Thank you for your patience. I'm, I'm going to be done like 74 seconds. <laughs> so whatever's happening in your life right now, if it seems dark, just obey. And every moment of obedience, more light will come. That doesn't mean it's going to be easier but you can have clarity about what to do. But that clarity doesn't come all at once. It comes a step at a time. So let's think about how that applies to, to you and your life, but also to us as a community. Whatever's happening to us at any time, it's about taking the next step of obedience. Trusting that there's a voice behind us. There is a God who's leaning over us, holding us, and the banjo, saying, this is the way. All we have to do, all we have to do is trust that. And whatever comes next, we know we'll have that voice again. This is the way. And the light will rise, and we will become the kind of people who can bring God's change into the world. Lord, we want to obey. We want the freedom that comes in obedience. We want to be the people who pray and live the prayer. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So today, God, I pray you break off of us all of the fear, the misunderstandings of power, the misunderstandings of fear and submission that keep us from leaning into obedience and draw us, Lord, into the kind of obedience you have for us. Let us be your friends who obey as you obey and in that obedience find the joy that you mean for us. And as we come to this table, Lord, let us share in this meal and take that step that leads us toward the light. That we know how to be the people of God. Amen. Pastor Ed. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time.
have a great week.